This is KX in Depth. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. Wildfires ripping through several of the Hawaiian islands. The town of Lahaina in Maui looks like a smoldering ruin right now, while fires are burning out of control on the big island. We'll go in depth. Also, why is Zoom keeping your data from video conference calls? Also, we'll go to Ohio, where voters paved the way for protecting abortion access in a very red state. But we start with the wildfires in Hawaii. Joshua Dorkin is a resident of Maui who had to be evacuated with his family to get out of the path of fires. Also with us, Elizabeth Pickett, who is co-director of the Hawaii Wildlife Management Organization. She is on the Big Island. Thank you both for being with us. Let's start, Joshua, with you. Tell us about your situation. Uh, last night, we were actually uh, taking in evacuees, friends from around the island. There, there were a number of fires burning, three or four fires, major fires burning last night. And uh, we were trying to help our friends. And, and uh, all was well until one of them started to get a little too close. Um, and uh, we got the word that we had to go. So, uh, you know, where do you go when, you know, all the major areas of your island are on fire? Uh, it's it's terrifying. Um, so we ended up finding uh, some friends who were in an area that we guessed would be safe. And uh, we went there. We got our parents and, and uh, set off on our way uh, past past fires and uh it was terrifying. The kids were scared. Everybody was uh, was scared, but thank goodness, you know, we got there safely and and uh, um, all was well. This morning, the uh, um, the evacuation order was rescinded, and we were able to get back to our home, which thank goodness survived. Unlike uh, countless other homes on the island, we think. Well, wow. uh, and, and and Maui is not the only place fires are burning. We have Elizabeth uh, on the uh, Big Island uh, with the uh, Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization. What are the situations with the fires burning on the Big Island? Well, on Hawaii Island, we have three fires currently burning. Um, one is small and contained, and the other two are um, are bigger than that, but they are stable. It's just. Uh, it's just that a lot of um, communities have been evacuated, and of course, people are um, are monitoring and watching closely because it's uh, we're not all the way out of the out of the park yet. People in California, of course, uh, Elizabeth, are very used to wildfires. Uh, I take it not the case in Hawaii. Um, well, actually, that's that's sort of a myth. <laughs> um, we have. A predictable wildfire season. We have wildfire risk. We have a lot of large fires that have happened with damages from summit to sea and to and threats to our communities. It's just that our issue is um, is novel in Hawaii over the last few decades. And so, rather than living in an area that has a fire dependent ecosystem, our native systems are not adapted to fire. But because we have invasive species that have moved in, and we're having increases in drought episodes. And people that aren't quite as aware, and we have a lot of accidental ignitions, those things come together to make Hawaii one of the more fire-prone states at this point. It's just that all of our resources and policies and actions and community um, awareness is still catching up to that very um, uh, serious reality. Joshua, as a resident of Maui, you know, here in California, we deal with wildfires as well, but we also deal with uh, problems with our insurance coverage for some homes. You know, insurance companies reticent to kind of pay out these uh, these uh, big bills when it comes to a lot of structures burning down. What's your situation with your home insurance? Do you have any? Does it cover wildfires? 
That's a great question, uh, and I, I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, you know, like I said, we, we, we're we okay. Um, I haven't had to start diving into that. Um, you know, what's what's more important is there's there's other people, there's small businesses, as, as uh, you know, mentioned in the intro. Lahaina's appears to have been completely devastated. We, we've got what what amounts to a, a media blackout um, because there's no power. Um, nobody can get in. You know, we're relying on things like Facebook uh, groups to communicate with with folks when when uh, cell phones aren't working. So, um, you know, the, these are these are the things that are, that are difficult. And, and frankly, you know, the the real problems are. You know, we're not getting enough uh, coverage of, of the locals. You know, what's happening here is obviously difficult for the tourists, but people live here and, and you know, infrastructure is absolutely devastated. We're going to need hundreds of thousands of construction workers to come in and help rebuild. It's going to take massive investment. We're going to need federal aid. And, um, you know, it's, it's early on, but we're not hearing much about any of that. All right, uh, Joshua and Elizabeth are going to stay on the line with us. We're going to continue covering these major wildfires burning in the Hawaiian Islands right now as In-Depth continues. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Still ahead, Zoom is taking your data from the video conference calls you make every day, and we're going to tell you what they're doing with that information. I don't know if I want to know what they're doing, but okay. You can find out. Yeah, right now, though, we're sticking with the fires still burning in Hawaii. Remaining with us is Maui resident Joshua Dorkin, who had to evacuate with his family last night, but is now back in his home. And Elizabeth Pickett, who is co-director of the Hawaii Wildlife Management Organization. She is on the big island where fires are also burning out of control. Joshua, you have a family. Kids can be a challenge in times like this. How did they deal with all this? Oh, they, they were they were terrified. They were terrified. We uh, when we realized we were actually going to have to leave, you know, we said, you know, get a suitcase, fill it with whatever you need for a couple of days, get a backpack, get your essentials. And we're going to be out of here in a few minutes. And they were in in tears, uh, completely distraught. But they did what they had to and they got their stuff. We got the dogs and we we got out. Um, you know, they, they're definitely traumatized nobody slept last night but um i think uh, i think we're all going to collapse pretty soon elizabeth if you would uh, give us kind of a rundown of what you're dealing with as far as your equipment is concerned you have firefighting equipment uh, is it working well how well does it work are you able to use ocean water is it difficult to get to the places where the fires are burning with the equipment that you have yeah that's a really important question so first i should start off by saying um we, uh, our organization um, focuses on prevention, education, mitigation, planning, and post-fire recovery. So we are not actually intimately involved in the suppression efforts, but in all of that um, preparedness and planning work that we do, we work so closely with our fire agencies. And a huge part of this situation is that um, on the one hand, you know, firefighting is the last line of defense. There's a lot that needs to happen ahead of time in terms of managing our vegetation, preparing our communities, et cetera. But when it comes down to the firefighting um, piece, you really want to have everything you need in place to really optimize um, a, and make for a safe and effective firefighting effort. And in Hawaii, across the state, not just on Maui, but across the state, we have very um, limited resources. We have 
very challenging access to our sloped environments that are wildland areas that don't have great access, don't have great fuel breaks, and honestly don't have um, water. It, we do not live in a state where every single place you go has tons of pressurized water fire hydrants. We don't have that kind of infrastructure. And so um, it's a challenge. We need water. We need access. We need fuels management. We need, we need all the pieces um, that are in place. And so when it comes to this kind of huge effort and severe wildland fires and severe conditions with these huge winds, where um, our agencies are made, uh, amazing at making the most of what they have. But it's, we're not like other states where we can pull in resources from our neighboring state or our neighboring towns. We are an island-based state, so it's just we're, we're stuck with what we have. Okay, you're stuck with what you have, Elizabeth. Are you going to be getting more? Are there plans to get more? Because you yourself pointed out that things have changed in the past few years. So these mm-hmm. uh, wildfires are likely to continue and perhaps at an accelerated rate. I mean, absolutely. That's we are all constantly advocating, um, writing grant proposals. Uh, all the partners from from um, our fire agencies and our forestry agency and ourselves, we are constantly putting in grant proposals, trying to fundraise. As far as I know, everybody's doing all they can to generate the resources we need, but it's slow coming, and it's also sometimes hard to make the case for people who don't understand how severe our wildland threat, it, wildland fire threat is in Hawaii. Um, there are some biases against us. You might just be thinking of rainbows and, and um, coral reefs or something like that, but we, we actually have serious grassland, um, an invasion with um, fire-prone grasses, and we have the conditions that are ripe for wildfire, and we have significant events. So we're facing all of that as we try to really shore up our resources um, and get to where we need. And like I said, it's not just firefighting. It's even on the pre-suppression right. mitigation side of things. We need we need a lot of everything for the entire time spectrum of fires. And that and that leads thank you Elizabeth Joshua that leads back to you. You heard some of what or all of what actually Elizabeth just had to say what they have what they don't have what they would like to have as somebody who lives on Maui, what have they done right? What have they done wrong? As as it pertains to fires well, or at least the, this situation, like like I said, I mean, our, the communication has been really, really poor. Um, people have struggled wondering where do they evacuate, what's safe, uh, what roads can you go on. The information, uh, like I said, this virtual media blackout uh, was extremely challenging last night uh, in terms of that. Right now, uh, Lahaina area is completely closed off, supposedly. Again, I say supposedly because... There's no way to fact check a whole lot of these things. Um, you know, people are are being told to evacuate through um, the the northern part of uh, West Maui. Um, the uh, but but supposedly that's that's specific to tourists um, and not for other folks. Again, a lot of rumors, a lot of things fly around when there's disasters and, and things going on. So. Getting clarity and information is going to be really helpful right now. In terms of the firefighting efforts, they were using little helicopters with little buckets to drop water. Um, Why does Hawaii not have a super scooper? Why don't we have other aerial firefighting tools that will work in high wind situations like the ones that we normally get here in Maui and across the islands? I mean, to me, it's it's a shock to, to, to see that that's not happening. And at this point, I mean, you know, I'm talking to a SoCal audience. I'd say, you know, can California get us, you know, an airplane on loan 
and and help us get these fires out while these winds are devastated devastating um it's it's uh it's really frustrating to to deal with uh these situations um but like i said you know with with no power because power lines were knocked down left and right across the Lahaina west maui uh area um you know it, it it's led just to more and more challenges over there Joshua, um, let, let me the rest let, let me ask you a quick question here, because we've been getting uh, inquiries from people who have been to Maui uh, and have a concern about. I gather you you guys have a, a rather famous, very large tree. We do, we do. Uh, so, um, as far as I know, and as far as I can surmise from from what we call coconut wireless, which is you know everybody talking to everyone else, texting, passing messages on social, and so on. Um, it appears that Lahaina is completely devastated. I mean, completely destroyed, including the tree, including the marina, everything. Joshua Dorkin was a, a Maori resident telling us that uh, Lahaina is just completely devastated at this point. Also, we had uh, Elizabeth Pickett, uh, co-director of the Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization, on with us. Okay, uh, terrible situation there. When we come back, we'll go to Ohio, where Republican-leaning voters delivered a major surprise. You're listening to KDX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. At the end of today's In-Depth, there's a new COVID variant starting to make the rounds just in time. Oh, goody, for back to school. In the uh, last few elections, the state of Ohio has leaned decidedly red, and that's what makes this uh, next story kind of surprising. Issue 1 went down to a huge defeat there. What is Issue 1? What does it mean? What does it mean for abortion rights? We have Lee Hanna with us, a political science professor at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So as I understand it, uh, there was an effort uh, by the uh, Republican-led legislature. They, they want to restrict uh, more abortion rights. Uh, uh, some residents of the state wanted to get it on the ballot to amend the Constitution to protect those rights. What is issue one? What did that have to do with all that? Yes, so this was an effort by the Republican Party, which has super majorities in our state house, to... Um, alter the direct initiative. So essentially they were going to raise the threshold to 60% for a law to pass. And then they were also going to require signatures in every county in Ohio. So had this passed, this would have essentially ended direct democracy in Ohio. Is there a likelihood that the forces that wanted this uh, to happen, uh, as you put it, to end democracy in Ohio, are, are going to make a comeback and try this in another way and fashion? Is there a way to do it? So they have argued that they are going to try to put some kind of abortion restrictions on a future ballot. Um, but, you know, they really did this. They they rushed this August election. We had canceled elections in August a couple of years ago. They fired them back up for this one vote on issue one um, because they know that, that the abortion rights amendments have passed in states that are more conservative than Ohio. So Kentucky passed one, Kansas passed one, uh, Michigan. Um, and so this was their best chance to um, to stop abortion rights from being codified into our Constitution. 
you know, this is interesting because there are repercussions going to go throughout the country on this because we've been mm-hmm. following politics, recent elections and everything, and Republicans have not done as well as people expected them to. And many experts are saying it is due to the abortion issue. If this were strictly about the economy or some other issues, uh, Democrats might not fare so well. But we're seeing Democrats win elections where they're not expected to because of abortion. Why mm-hmm. do Republicans in Ohio want to die on this hill <laughs> While the larger party is wrestling with, well, maybe we should forget about abortion and focus on other stuff. Yeah, it's a great question, and it is a bit surprising. Um, the The real orchestrator behind this is our Secretary of State, Frank LaRose. He's going to be running for the U.S. Senate, um, trying to challenge Sherrod Brown, and um, he really just put his, his neck on the line for this bill. My thought is, is that even though they know it's a loser in general elections, they're so... Um, they're so competitive in the primaries that they do this for the pro-life lobby, which is very strong in their primary constituency. And so it's a, it's a play to uh, the, the further right of their of their party. Um, but then it comes back to bite them. And we saw that with you know so many flawed candidates in 2022 for the Republican Party in a year where they should have at least taken back the Senate. So is it a a what a celebratory mood in your state now or is it more cautious optimism? I would say probably celebratory today. And, you know, this not only did um, did, you know supporters of, of abortion rights, of course, come out and, and vote this down, um, but this was a big uh, energizer for organized labor in the state um, for some of these, uh, you know, good government organizations like Common Cause and uh, League of Women Voters. And so I think that there's at least uh, some sense today that uh that there's a limit to what the um, what the Republican legislature and and office holders can do, and and honestly, outside of Sherrod Brown, our, our Democratic senator, um, the, they have pretty much lost statewide for going on over a decade now. And so this was a um, a big swing, and and um, and maybe unexpected. Certainly, I think the margin was was unexpected. All right, thank you so much, Lee Hanna, political science professor at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Zoom, which we used a lot of during uh, pandemic lockdowns, kicked up a lot of controversy this week. Sure did. The company updates its terms of service to let users know it was collecting data for a specific purpose. Cody Vensky is a senior counsel for surveillance, privacy and technology at the ACLU. Cody, thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be here. Glad to be chatting about privacy and how it affects all of us. Okay, so tell us about how Zoom, in updating its terms of service, apparently kind of got in there something that a lot of people don't like. Yeah, it's worth stepping back and asking, how did we get to this particular situation? And the answer is really without a national law regulating what companies can collect on us and what they can use that data for, we're kind of subject to what companies put in their terms of service and how they interpret them. And in this particular case, Zoom added to its terms of service that it can use all sorts of data about us for a large variety of uses. And one of those is training artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
Now, uh, Zoom has come out uh, kind of trying to tamp this down as much as they can. They said uh, today, or actually uh, Monday, that it will not use customers' data without consent to train artificial intelligence, uh, addressing privacy concerns of a growing number of customers over new language in the app's terms of service. What do you make of Zoom's statement there? Essentially saying, no, 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 calm down, don't worry. It's really a a powerful indication of the state of privacy in the United States right now, where we are subject to broad terms of service that give companies broad leeway to do sort of whatever they want, or at least what they say they want to do with our data. And then we have to go back and get clarification after the fact. And a good example of sort of the extreme lack of rights we have in our own data is these terms of service aren't that new. Zoom implemented them way back in March. And we're only now noticing them because companies are largely not required to let us know when they decide to make unilateral changes to what they're collecting and how they're using it. Well, you know what? I also wonder, uh, Cody, in, in, uh, as Rob was reading off that statement from Zoom that they're not going to use the data without the consent. But, you know, there's getting consent and then there's getting consent. Uh, I mean, do they mean that they're going to add, you know, five words in a 400-page disclaimer that nobody ever, ever reads when you click off on something? And is that going to be the way they get consent? And it's it's not just what is consent, but who is giving the consent? Because right now, for many companies, consent means, as you just said, it's buried in a long terms of service. And when you log on, you've consented. It's sort of a legal fiction, but unfortunately, it's one that is the law in this land right now. But Zoom is also not something you use by yourself. It's inherently a connection between people. And so you might be joining a Zoom call uh, where they have indeed consented to this use of AI uh, and you don't have any other choice if you want to participate in that call. And it's really demonstrating the sort of need for limitations on what companies can use the data for. Would some of that data include Ourselves, our faces, what we look like, is that uh, feeding information into AI? I know there are some AI programs that make art, and they use that using paintings, pictures, what have you. Is Zoom thinking about doing something like that as well? You know, I I can't read what Zoom's long-term business plan is, and this is where the clarification came into play earlier this week, where we know that they're not going to use audio, video, or chat from customers without consent again. What does consent mean? Who is giving that consent? But that leaves lots of other data that's covered by this terms of service that they might want to use for training AI. So not only do we have limited protections from consent, but still there's lots of data about us, about who we connect with, how we use the product that might get used in those sorts of ways. And right now, Zoom has indicated that the AI usage will be limited to just a couple of products, uh, like a meeting report summary. But as with all terms of service regarding data usage, they might change their minds about that in the future. All right, Cody Vinsky, Senior Counsel for Surveillance, Privacy, and Technology at ACLU. Charles, I guess the idea is that we should always read the terms of service, the 400 pages of it for everything that we use. That and just send a postcard. Yeah. (laughs) When we come back just in time for your kids to go back to school, there's a new COVID variant in circulation. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. Well, several hundred thousand students will be returning to LAUSD classrooms next week. And one week after that, most major Southern California school districts will be back in session for a new academic year. 
So how's this for perfect timing? There's a new COVID variant starting to make the rounds. Dr. John Moore is an immunologist and microbiologist at Cornell Medical College. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Hi, you're welcome. Boy, this COVID virus, it's a real pain in the neck. I, I mean, it just won't let up. Uh, tell us a little bit about this new variant. Well, it's very similar to what has been circulating at low levels uh, much of the summer. It's an Omicron strain, so it's nothing radically different from what we've been experiencing and living with for most of the past uh, 18 months or more. So it's only very slightly different from the uh, one XBB uh, that was being around the last few months. This one, for some reason, has been given a different name, but it's very, very similar. So there's not a game changer. It's just essentially the same virus with a bit more transmissibility, which is why it's spreading a little more than the previous ones. But infection rates are really low at the moment. I mean, there's been an uptick in recent weeks, but from a very low baseline, we're not at anything like the levels we had when Omicron first came around, where there were over a million recorded infections a day. This is a very low level event. Would you say that uh, even though there is an uptick, uh, uptick of uh, cases, but uh, nothing to uh, freak out about yet, uh, do we need to worry about uh, making sure that we've got uh, updated boosters uh, ready to go, or is it not at that level yet? There will be a new booster or uh, authorized uh, sometime in the next several months, various People in government have sort of talked about October as being the likely rollout time. It's the, the three different companies will have this um, modified booster. Uh, that's um, Moderna and Pfizer and Novavax. Two of them are mRNAs. One, the Novavax, is a protein vaccine. They're all based on an XBB strain, which is what until recently was the most common uh, strain circulating. The new one is a little different, so it would be uh, the booster would be just as effective against the one that's made, now making the news, um, EG5, I think it's called. Uh, but so it, it's really a distinction without a difference. The booster would be as effective against the new variant as against the XBB variants that it was designed against. Okay, but then that does lead to the question, why, since the, you know, the uh, first variant has been around already, now you've got this uh, sort of, I guess, what, a, a variation of the variant, a sub-variant uh, circulating and picking up a little bit of steam anyway. Why is it taking perhaps until October for these vaccines, updated vaccines, to be available? I always thought, going back to uh, when these messenger RNA vaccines first came out, that the whole beauty of them was supposed to be that they could, if not turn on a dime, they can pretty much very quickly tweak these vaccines to accommodate any new variant that's coming along. Well, I think in a real emergency, things could be done much quicker. But at the current low levels of infection that's circulating, uh, firstly, the vaccines, new stocks need to be manufactured and filed and tested and the FDA does need to review data. I don't think it's going to be a, a, a anywhere near as long a review as we, we potentially could see, but they still need to look at some data on the performance of the product uh, as a 
you know, insurance to public safety that it's not being too rushed out, that you get complaints that things are too rushed, but you also get complaints if it's not rushed enough. So somewhere there's a sweet spot, and I imagine it's quite difficult to find it. But also rolling it out, rolling the new booster out in around October and so forth actually makes sense because although you do see these summer, you know, upticks, um, most infections take place in the winter months. And, and we've seen that year after year, you know, around Thanksgiving, infections tick up a lot more than they do uh, at the present. So if we're going to see uh, an incre a new increase in, in infections, it's likely to be in the fall, around Thanksgiving and into Christmas. And having a booster in October, November makes sense because the booster effect on protecting against infection doesn't last all that long, not with the current variants that are around. So you will get a short-term benefit of protection against infection, and you might as well have that as close as possible to the time when infections are, are springing up to a higher level. But protection against disease, that's still there. So the infections that, that, are, that are happening for people in good health who are not in high-risk groups, who are not immunocompromised, who are not unvaccinated, or who are not got the pre-existing conditions we all know too much about by now. The current infections are not putting in people in hospital. They're giving them a, a bad cold, a few days, you know, feeling a bit rough. Does that when include 65 plus? Well, the older you are, the more pre-existing health conditions you have. Again, we've seen that consistently. So people who know they are in relatively high-risk groups should be vaccinated at the earliest opportunity. And you can still go and get, I believe, a booster with the current vaccine. Uh, if you're in a high-risk group, you should see your physician and see if you can get a prescription or a recommendation or whatever it takes if you're in a high-risk group. But for the average person in good health it's it's not as necessary nowhere near as necessary i mean i'm over 65 i am planning to get uh the new booster sometime around october when it becomes available i'm not freaking out about not getting it at the moment all right dr john moore thank you so much uh, immunologist microbiologist at cornell medical college about this new sub sub variant kind of uh that's floating around a covid I like it when when doctors are not freaking out. When doctors don't freak out, I feel better. Yeah, yeah. that's good. But, it's when they freak out that it right. gets me but upset. When the doctors and the scientists, they come in with their hair on fire and they're yelling, <laughs> that's when I yes. want to get concerned. All right. That's it for KNX In-Depth today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.